Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And with Ian. And we are reading through Patrick O'Brien's Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron novels. Last week we started, we pulled down off the shelf Treason's Harbor. And Ian, catch us up to where we are this week and what we were doing when we opened that book. Well, last week we found ourselves on the beautiful Mediterranean island of Malta. Um, with French spies already keeping close tabs on the activities of Stephen Maturin. We met local solace Mrs. Laura Fielding and her dog Ponto, who we learn are going to have a role to play in the story. We found Professor Graham still in conversation with Stephen, this time talking about philosophy. And we also got the chance to talk about that with our friend Brian Wilson, digging into the philosophical background a little bit more. We heard also about the steadfast friendship of dogs and how it enriches all of our lives and all of our loves and all these great stories. So, Mike, this week, Jack and Pullings, just as we left them last time, they were on the way up the hill to the governor's reception. So I think we're going to find out what goes down at the governor's reception for Jack and newly promoted Pullings. We're going to meet Andrew Ray because he's in town. Jack's drowning rescue skills are featured, but this time he's not pulling a seaman out of the water. And rumours are starting to fly about Jack, who sees an old friend, an old Navy friend. Stephen, meanwhile, I think could be in for more than he bargained for, even though he's going to get a musical treat. He's going to enjoy some plain chant. So here we are. Wow. So we're going to find out what goes down as they go up to see the governor. Keep this up and down motif in mind. I think uh, O'Brien plays it up this chapter for sure. So this guest that they're all going to see with the governor, this is Governor Sir Hildebrand, was Andrew Ray. We remember Andrew Ray from earlier in the books here. And, And Jack, as we've talked about before, didn't look forward to seeing him, but he knows that he's got to officially introduce now Captain Poolings, his former lieutenant, and that makes it a little less awkward. And Jack kind of, you know, standing in this reception line also notices that Ray's really not looking at all uneasy about seeing him. So they finally get their chance. Jack steps forward. He introduces Poolings and Ray immediately turns and says, I'm delighted to see you, Captain Poolings. He holds out his hands and I congratulate you with all my heart on your share in the surprise's brilliant victory. As soon as I read Captain Aubrey's dispatch, bowing to Jack, and his glowing account of your unparalleled exertions, I said, Mr. Poolings must be promoted. There were gentlemen who objected that the Torgood was not in the Sultan's service at the moment of her capture, that the promotion would be irregular, that it would establish an undesirable precedent, but I insisted that we should attend to Captain Aubrey's recommendation, and I may tell you privately, and he adds in a lower tone, smiling placidly at Jack as he does so, that I insisted all the more strongly because at one time, Captain Aubrey seemed to do me an injustice, and by promoting his lieutenant, I could, as the sea phrase goes, better wipe his eye. Few things have given me greater pleasure than bringing out the commission, and I am only sorry that the victory should have cost you such a cruel wound. Hmm. So uh, there's a couple of things happening here for me, Mike. First of all, 
this little speech by Ray does a really, really great job in catching us all up and doing a bit of continuity and a bit of exposition, reminding us where Ray and Jack are as as, as men in the world and reminding us what's going on with pullings and the, the consequences of the, the action at the end of the previous book. The governor, it turns out, is just like a cipher. He's a stuffed suit. Um, <laughs> somebody says to the governor, that was Aubrey who took Marga. And the governor replies, oh, so it was held by the enemy. I collect. <laughs> yeah, the, the governor's clearly not the intellectual shining light in Maltese society. But Mike, the other thing is this this is such sort of fork tongue speech by Ray. Jack wanders straight away. Could any man have such boundless impotence to speak so if it were false? And I'm thinking the same as I'm reading this, thinking he is so blatantly spinning a line here that it's either just a great joke or Ray is dissembling and he's kidding himself just as much as he's kidding Pullings and he's kidding Jack. And Jack doubts this. He's trying to remember back to the night that he confronted Ray over cards. This is like three, four, five books ago. How much had he drunk? Had there really been cheating at cards for the large sums of money? Who were the other people at the table? And Jack's left really uncertain. Mike, I think the person who's not uncertain in all of this is Pullings. It's all unmitigated joy and celebration for Pullings. Yeah, as, as Jack's thinking through all this, he realizes that Pullings is over there, you know, right next to him here, complimenting the second secretary, Ray, proposing a toast to him. He's raising an admiral's flip, a drink that is 50% champagne and 50% brandy. And I think Jack kind no, of gets an eye on Pullings and is thinking about how much they've already been drinking and suggests that they toast with beer because they're, they're already pretty far into their cups. Come, sir, said Pullings reproachfully. It's not every day I wet the swab. Very true, said Jack, remembering the time he first put on a commander's epaulette. Only one in those days and his unbounded delight, which we, of course, remember from Mastering Commander. So awesome. So Jax is very true to Mr. Secretary's very good health then, and may he prosper in all his designs. Hmm. So Jack kind of, you know, while all this insurity about Ray is thinking, hey, I've got to be happy with Tom Pullings here. Yeah. And Jack's not the only one who wants to congratulate Pullings. There are plenty of other thirsty sea officers around who want to join in the congratulation. And Jack saw them pretty much carrying Pullings away to a seat out in the garden. And Pullings is slurring the words when Jack goes to check on him. Pullings is just overjoyed and overcome. He's thinking about how much his wife is going to appreciate the salary. He talks about 16 beautiful guineas a lunar month. And Jack wonders what she's going to say when she sees his poor old face. He's had this terrible, ugly wound to his face in the process of the, the action at the end of the last book. And he's reassured, knowing that Stephen says the wound's going to heal and that Pullings will be okay. At this moment, though, Jack remembers that the day is marching past. He, Jack, has an appointment with Mrs. Fielding, and he goes to find Bondon to look after Tom. So Jack calls for Bondon. Bondon, says Jack, Mister uh, Captain Pullings is taken a little poorly. And I love the response from Bondon, this totally deadpan, matter-of-fact inquiry. Paralytic, sir, asked Bondon, in a spirit of pure inquiry. No moral or even aesthetic question arose. And Jack replies, not as who should say paralytic, 
but this was at once understood as decent form, no more, and Bondon said that he would borrow a stretcher from the pile, always ready in the guardroom when the governor gave a party, rouse out a couple of strong, reliable bargemen for the fore-end, and cut round to the garden gate, for to avoid scandals, sir, and letting the redcoats laugh. And I love the naval humour, I love the deadpan, and there's also a the beginning of a metaphor here about equality. We talked in the previous chapter between Stephen and Graham about Rousseau and the rights of man. And here we've got the officer class up on the top of the hill in the governor's mansion getting smashed <laughs> and then relying on the lower deck to carry them back down the hill. Hmm. Right, right. And, and, you know, we'll have to remember this too, that, you know, who's allowed to get drunk and when and how people react to that. And <laughs> because we'll, we'll see it again shortly, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack walks with them back through town as, you know, they're carrying Tom on the stretcher. Bondin is with them and everything. And and people are reaching out of these second story windows where the balconies have kind of leaned closer to the street. And they're trying to grab Jack's hat. You know, remember this hat with this beautiful diamond thing that the Sultan has given him. And Jack is wearing his hat just like Nelson, O'Brien points out, a fort ships rather than fore and aft. And O'Brien tells us that Jack's had a lot of practice with this from days of his youth, but he also says that normally they wouldn't treat a post captain like this, but this was the feast of St. Simeon Stylite. So there was a great deal of license tolerated, O'Brien tells us. O'Brien seems to take it for granted that we all know, well, obviously, since it's the day of St. Simeon, you know, people are going to run amok. That certainly wasn't in my mind as I was reading this. Tell, tell us a bit about St. Simeon. What, what's going on there? Right. I'm like you. I kind of looked at the same thing and I thought, this could be a throwaway remark, but yeah, not usually O'Brien's style. I suspect he's got this guy here for a reason. And it's a fascinating. So Simeon was a Syrian aesthetic saint. So he's somebody who is kind of best known for the fact that the last 37 years of his life, he lived on a small platform on top of a pillar. That stylites in, in the end of his name is the Greek word for pillar. And he did this to kind of get away from everybody so he could kind of dedicate himself to prayer and meditation. Unfortunately, he was so well known for how much he would kind of abuse himself and give up that one, he had been thrown out of earlier monasteries because, you know, they, they were kind of like, this guy was just way too much for them. You know, you can't go all of the 40 days of Lent and not eat a thing. Get out of here. You know, that's too much. We're not going to do that. And so these people are all coming after him. They're kind of, they want to emulate him or or seek his wisdom or ask him to intervene, you know, with God on their behalf or to grant them miracles. Yeah. And he just wants to get away. So he keeps building these taller and taller columns. And then in, in the end, he's got this 60 feet tall column six feet in diameter, where he stays for the last 30 years, never comes down. You know, his disciples kind of bring him food. He chains himself up there so that he doesn't fall off accidentally while he's sleeping. And it's just, I mean, it's just so kind of over the top in a way. Yeah. I was fascinated to learn that there are a number of people that emulate him. As a matter of fact, there's a you know, he's St. Simeon the Elder, there's the Junior, there's the Third, and it actually goes on into the 1800s. There's, I think the last one was in Russia, somebody doing this. But 
There's also, in addition to this incredible number of aesthetics that sort of emulate this, there are a number of things. Tennyson wrote a very satirical poem about this very guy, about how he's you know doing all this denying himself, but then is touting all his success at denial. And then he's going back and forth kind of with himself going, is this going to be enough? You know, have I given up enough? Have I suffered enough to be saved? Would this win me salvation? Oh, I shouldn't be thinking about that, but maybe I will. But maybe believing it is a trick. All very dark. And a Polish poet later picks up on this too. And he kind of pictures Simeon up here on top of the pole, you know, kind of being holier than thou, while everything horrible is going on around the bottom of the pole, including, you know, one one young woman getting raped there as he stands righteously above. Oh, my gosh. That's really dark. I've I've got to say many, many Catholic undertones in that story as well. Well Well put. Thank you. (laughs) So I I think we might come back to this metaphor of high and low. But like you say, it's no coincidence that we've got this patron saint for the day who's into asceticism and putting himself at the top of a pillar of moral authority. Speaking of pillars of moral authority, let's talk about (laughs) Killick. They get Tom back to his lodgings. Killick is really upset. He's he's worried that they got pullings into this state. And he's really worried, though, about the Chilenk. He knows it's made of real diamonds. We get this nice reference to the fact that Killick used the diamonds to score on the windows. Preserved Killick, HMS, surprise, none so pretty. And he's pretty sure that the Chilenk ranks above the crown jewels because, you know, crown jewels don't have clockwork in them, so you can't say fair of them. And we're still back with the lower deck here as well as Killick avariciously caring for the Chilenk, we get this little dialogue between Jack and Killick and Bonden. They've put Pullings to bed. Jack doesn't want to be late for Mrs. Fielding. He knows that officers in uniform can't carry things, which is a bit of Simeon style all by itself. You know, you can't be seen to do manual labour when you're wearing the king's uniform. So he asks Bonden to take his fiddle round to Mrs. Fielding's. And Bonden hesitates And Killick, who's replacing the best uniform hat, by the way, with a threadbare one, points out that if Bonden carries the fiddle, the Marines will make fun of him. And we get this nice bit of reported speech. It was all hellfire nonsense, began Captain Aubrey, and there were a couple of goddamn swabs, but then reflecting that they'd followed him many a time onto the deck of an enemy man of war when there was no question of carrying fiddle cases or being laughed at, he said, well, there's no time to be lost. They might do as they choose, but if that fiddle were not at Mrs. Fielding's within five minutes of his own arrival, they might look out for another ship. So there's all kinds of exchanges of status going on here, although Jack's the captain and he's commanding the manual work of these people to serve him. The servants themselves are a little bit worried about their status and how it looks. And I was also really struck, Mike, by how we're getting so much of Jack's dialogue in this first chapter in reported speech. Jack's actually not getting very many moments to say his own words from his own mouth. And maybe deliberately, we're having the focus put for the time being on other people like Stephen and Ray and Pullings and Killick and Bonden and Laura Fielding right. rather than on Jack himself. Right. Well, we we do get a moment here for Jack, but not with any speech, as you say. As you know, Bonden has hired a boy to to take the fiddle to the house. The fiddle actually, of course, arrives before Jack. <laughs> Jack yeah. gets there, Bonden and the boy, 
and and he sends Bondin off and says, you know, basically, I'm fine. I'll see you at six in the morning. Have my gig ready. And I'm thinking, hmm, well, that sounds a little suspicious. But in any event, Mrs. Fielding's not at home. Jack, uh, you know, O'Brien tells us knocks at her garden house gate, um, doesn't hear anything, but the gate is open. And and she had told him earlier in the day that it would be. So he waits a decent interval. He goes into the courtyard and is kind of looking at her lemon tree, sitting there, taking the evening air. And he's about to get out his fiddle to kind of entertain himself when he becomes, O'Brien writes, aware of a desperate, unearthly wailing, fairly regular. So some strange noise off in the distance. This is quite unsettling. We've had lots of light and jollity around Jack, but he's now alone in this courtyard with this wailing sound. And already we're feeling a bit unsettled. So he follows the sound. He walks around the house and he finds it's coming from a broad, deep cistern sunk into the corner to receive rainwater. A a well, in other words. And he sees the dog Ponto, the Illyrian Mastiff, four to five feet below him. It says, swimming there, straining up its large, lamentable head and uttering a hoarse, wow, 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 of extraordinary volume. The cistern, the water well, was half empty, the water taken in buckets earlier on to water the lemon tree. Ponto, therefore, had fallen in. Somehow, we don't know how, really. He can't touch the bottom because the water's too deep. The water level, though, is so low that he can't get to the top. And we read that his paws have left bloody marks and he looks mad with terror. And this is a really distressing idea you know the the idea of a dog in such danger in such pain in fear and jack pretty clearly thinks i have to help the dog so he leans in tries to grab the collar but ponto sm- swims away from him you silly calfhead bitch says jack give us your scruff bear a hand now you infernal bugger and ponto hears the familiar naval sounds and swims towards jack's hand jack's grabbing the collar with one hand and the top of the system with the other completely outstretched and there's a there's a moment of realization here i think for jack so jack's got him like you know pulled halfway up and the edge of the cistern starts to give way and 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 as you say you know jack's got this stuff going on in his head two thoughts flashed into his plunging mind there go my breeches and i must keep clear of his jaws And then he was standing on the bottom of the cistern with the water up to his chest and the dog round his neck. And he says that the dogs, you know, basically wrapped his legs around him just like a human embrace. And, you know, he can he can hear the dog's strangled breath in his ear. It's strangled, but it's no longer demented. Uh, O'Brien says Ponto had clearly recovered what wits he possessed. Jack let go the collar turned the dog about, grasped his middle, and crying, a whale off, thrust him up towards the rim. Ponto got his paws onto it, then his chin. Jack gave his rump one last powerful heave, and he was gone. The mouth of the cistern overhead was empty, but for the pale sky and three stars. And here endeth chapter one. Wow. So first of all, what a great chapter. I mean, there's been so much going on. It's taken us more than an episode to get through the chapter. And we finish off with one of these great switches of perspective like O'Brien does. You know, we're, we're away from the system and we're up in the sky. Right. But Mike, there's, there's a lot going on here. There's, we've, we've gone from the governor's mansion at the top of the hill in kind of the opposite direction here. We do. You know, we go top of the hill, 
back to the bottom of the hill on a stretcher. We've, you know, we've talked about the upper decks and the lower decks. We've talked about this saint who kind of climbs way high on a column, attempting to ignore the world, doing no one any physical good, only to find himself surrounded by more people than ever. And now we've got this worldly, fun-loving captain with an excess of worldly goods, included a diamond-studded uniform cap who, you know, eats, drinks, lives to excess, loves to be around people, doing this truly good deed, who finds himself not up on a column, but weighed down in a hole, a cistern, a reverse column, if you will. And so St. Simeon died chained to his column, surrounded by people. What's going to happen to Jack now that he's saved Ponto? What's, you know, what, what does the universe have him store for him to, as a great reward here? Wow, it's, it's a really great chapter ending, isn't it? Really great. Just so much to think about, so much to reflect on. We turn the page, and I think we turn the page expecting to hear somebody coming along to fetch Jack out of the cistern. But we go many, many steps ahead just like O'Brien, to skip a load of narrative and leave us kind of gasping a little bit. He tells us that Malta was a gossiping place, and the news of Captain Aubrey's liaison with Mrs. Fielding soon spread throughout Valletta and even beyond. Jack even noticed some people smiling at him with what are called vague congratulatory expressions that he didn't understand, and nor did he understand the wry looks and pursed lips from naval wives who were friends of Mrs. Aubrey, because Jack was the last, of course, to hear the gossip. And all of a sudden, we're planted in this world where far from Stephen plotting how he can appear to have an affair with Mrs. Fielding for for espionage purposes, all of a sudden, we're pitched into a world where everybody now takes it for granted that it's Jack who's having the affair with Mrs. Fielding. And in fact, Jack's, we learn that Jack thinks that this would somehow not be okay. He had always, it says, regarded fellow sailors' wives as sacred unless they threw out clear signals to the contrary. So he would have been astonished. And all of a sudden, as a reader, we're left thinking, well, hold on, has this happened? Have we flipped so far ahead in time that the affair is now underway? Or are we just talking about perception? It's a real puzzling moment. Yeah, this is kind of like, you know, when O'Brien opened a chapter last book with this thing, this great big argument between Graham and Aubrey that we know nothing about. Now there's this liaison that we know nothing about, but it, it does quickly explain the source of the gossip. So in the next scene, Jack is walking along with Stephen and all of a sudden pulls him into this glass shop, this beautiful, exquisite glass shop only to be immediately followed by Ponto, who bounds in, knocks over rolls of bottles and glass, jumps up on Jack, licks his face, his tail, his big tail is swagging and and knocking over all these other glass items. And and we find out that this happens multiple times a day. (laughs) Whenever Ponto sees his savior, Jack, he essentially attacks him to love on him. And then he drags him kind of back to his mistress, Mrs. Feeling. And the two of them are always beaming together and Ponto's beaming at them. And she says how happy Ponto is to see him. And they're so grateful and how happy she is to see him. And I guess this is what the townspeople are all looking at going, oh, my gosh, you know, these two just can't even hide it. Get a room here. What's wrong with you? And so we have this scene happening over and over again. And we have Killick always staying behind to pay for the damages over and over again. And in this case, Jack has got to say, you know, I have 
not a moment to lose. I've got to rush off. I've got to get to the dockyard, but I will leave you, Mrs. Fielding, in Stephen's fine company. Which, of course, is how the world was meant to be just, just right. a few short pages ago. Exactly. So Ponto's getting a lot of a lot of the story here. We're getting more of Ponto's character than we are of Jack's at the minute. Anyhow, we get the flip side, I think, Mike, of the, of the party on the governor's mansion. So we had the officers up high on the hill drinking Admiral's Flip and getting smashed and getting carried down the hill on a stretcher. Meanwhile, down low in the muddy mess of the dockyard, we learn that the dockyard workers are, it says, laboring at enormous cost upon the Worcester and the poor old surprise is left deserted and gunless, perilously shored up in a pool of stinking mud next to what's left of the ship's company. And instead of the crack crew that Jack had hoped to take with him to the North American station, he's had to fight hard to keep to much more than his bargemen and his personal followers together. They keep getting detailed off to go and make up other crews. And they're living in these shacks, he says, devoting their time to wasting their substance and destroying their health with a company of women who are camped at the gates. And they've all been on a big night out. After listening to the excuses of the dockyard workers, Jack inspects the crew, and even though they are reported to be all present and sober, sir, they are only just so, even by naval standards. Even the officers, with the exception of Calamy and Williamson, were either drunk or hungover. And they've spent all their money, their clothes are rags, they're filthy, they're debauched. This is the flip side. This is the hangover that Jack deserves, I think, from his day up on the hill with the mansion. Even Pullings who's there as a guest, the, Captain Pullings, who's there as a supernumerary, seems lost and anxious because he's got no ship, he's got no likelihood of one in the short term. And O'Brien writes that Tom was beginning to realise that a hopeful journey was better than the arrival, that nothing could come up to expectation, and that there was a great deal to be said for old ways, old friends, and one's old ship. Mm-hmm. Ah, wise thoughts from Tom Pullings. Mm-hmm. So... Jack decides he's going to take matters in hand. We're going to go to Gozo, and he invites Tom to take command of the launch. Oh, so nice. You know, Jack, seeing Tom all left out and says, here, here, Tom, come along with us. You know, do me a favor, right? And the crew is not happy. <laughs> you know, they're, they're hungover to begin with, and now they, gotta, they jump into the barge and the launch and the gig, the two cutters, the jolly boat. And they head out under oars because they're going into the wind and against the current. Uh, and, and Jack is thinking, this will claw some of the jam off their backs, which, Ian, as you pointed out to me, is what Admiral Mitchell said when he challenged Jack to race up the rigging. So, right. <laughs> a line that finds its way back in here. So the, yeah. the crew knows it's going to be, as O'Brien says, 13 unlucky miles before they can raise their sails again. And Jack, being the kind of sodomite that they see him as right now, they're thinking, you know, he's probably going to make us row all the way around Malta. And so in these boats, O'Brien is describing all the, you know, all the looks they're exchanging, some of the disrespectful things they're saying, and, and all this calibrated to whoever is in charge of their boat. So, where Calamy and Williamson have their own boats, they said, uh, O'Brien says, the talk was downright mutinous. And the young gentlemen, uh, you know, are kind of yelling in more, more and more shriller reprimands at them. But thankfully, O'Brien tells us that, you know, after an hour or so, the ill humor was sweated out of them. 
And then they they finally get to Gozo and Jack stops. He orders them a round of drinks and they beamed on him with their former kindness. So Jack has found that he can whip a crew back in shape even when he's on land, as long as he can get them to a set of oars. Yeah, and as long as he buys a round of drinks at the end of the day, how, how to keep naval guys happy. Right, right. And this is, this is what we do when we're upset with our people for being hungover. Work them hard and buy them drinks. That's <laughs> old school. Old school. I like his style. Yes. So the naval hierarchy is, is still with us. Um, the crew are sitting in a shady spot, enjoying some cold drinks that have been provided by Jack. Jack, meanwhile, joins a group of officers who've come out to the island, similarly on a day out, and they're chatting away about the confidential mission that apparently they all know about, so it's not that confidential anymore, to the Red Sea. Um, Jack's heard of a mission on behalf of the Sultan, the Grand Turk of the Ottoman Empire, to try and diminish French influence and protect British shipping. We hear that the French have provided the Sheikh of Mubara. Now, our friend Tom Horn on the mapping project Canonade.net says that Mubara is fictional. So presumably the Sheikh of Mubara, this guy, Talal, is also fictional. Um, This Sheikh has been provided by the French with European vessels, European shipwrights to build galleys to harass British shipping and embarrass the Turks. And as we're going to hear, this is shipping headed out to the East Indies down the Red Sea. The plan seems to be, according to the gossip among the officers, that the East India Company is going to lend a ship, a transport, to be manned by the Royal Navy to take Turkish troops in an amphibious operation to capture the island and replace the Sheikh. It's got to be done quietly. It's got to be done quickly with surprise. And you can ask yourself whether that surprise is likely to be complete if all of the British officers are already gossiping about it. Mm. Um, If it's going to happen quickly enough to succeed and not upset the other Sheikhs, the other rulers in the area. We hear that the command of this expedition is going to be given to Lord Lowestoff, who's somebody who knows the area. He's currently without a ship. And they all have a bit of a laugh thinking of this short, fat, amiable Lord Lowestoff marching across the desert to Suez. Suez is no place for an amiable fat man. (laughs) And two things occur to me here, Mike. First of all, stick a pin in the idea of an amiable fat man not enjoying a trip across the desert to Suez. Mm. And second of all, hang on, we had time in the morning of this day for Jack to inspect the ship's crew and put them to sea in launches. We had time for them to row 13 miles to Umjar in Gozo, and we still had time for them to lay around under the uh, awnings while the officers went to dish about the mission to the Red Sea and and still be in time to row to row or sail home. I think this is a very, very long day if they manage to get all of this in. And, and it gets longer. Yeah. <laughs> it continues. As they sit there and, and they're talking about the mission Captain Hammer, one of the captains there who's had some experience in the Red Sea, had been already consulted by the guy, the Lord who's going to have this mission. And Pullings asked him about navigating there. You know, he's heard that it's a very difficult place to sail. It's uncommonly hot. And I don't know whether this comes back again or not, Ian, but we notice that in this interchange between Hammer and Pullings, that you know, Pauling's asked kind of a, a good faith question, yeah. but his wound is such that it almost makes him look like he's leering and he's a bit nervous in his tone. So at first, you know, Hammer kind of takes it a, a little offensively, but then realizes, no, 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 he, he meant it for real and, and tells him, yeah, this is excessive hellfire, humid heat. He describes these 
conditions on the ship. And he's going kind of on and on again about how aggressive the sharks are in addition to everything else that he's talking about, about the area. And, and Jack has, he knows Hammer. Uh, he knows that sometimes he tells tales, although today he's not really, but he does, he's kind of reminded in his head that Stephen always says, you know, you need to have the discretion of the tomb. You don't talk about confidential things. And he thinks they've been going on far too much. So he cuts him off. And when he, he gets back to this aggressive sharks in the Red Sea, he says, most sharks are gammon. They look fierce and throw out their chest, but it's all my eye and Betty Martin, you know, all cry and no wool. I dive to plump on to an enormous hammerhead off the Morocco coast, just south of the Timgad Shoal, to be exact. And all he did was to ask my pardon and hurry away. Most sharks are gammon. <laughs> Very good. You know, so apart from Jack saying loose lips sink ships, he's turned our attention to sharks. And of course, it's an O'Brien story. So two things are going on here. First of all, we love an animal metaphor. Right. <laughs> and second of all, there's, there's some O'Brien long ball being played here. Way back in post-Captain, he used exactly the same phrase. He said, sharks are mostly gammon, all cry and no wool, unless there's blood about. They prefer galley leavings. And he described it as told a similar story about in the West Indies station, he dived plump on the back of a huge great brute. So maybe this is kind of epithet territory and this is a story that's being retold to help our memory. Or maybe O'Brien just forgot that he'd already used these words about sharks. But we have a, this new Aubreyism here, Mike, all my eye and Betty Martin. Who the heck was Betty Martin? Right. I mean, this is something I'm, uh, you know, I'm thinking like you wait a minute what what and all my eye pretty common phrase english french even american if we can call that a language all my eye meaning you know hogwash i'm I'm, you know in my eye no i don't believe it but and betty martin so it was so much fun because you can find all kinds of sites who will tell you exactly who Betty Martin is and where this story came from, except they all disagree. <laughs> and then as soon as you have some definitive ones, others come back and talk, you know, prove to you how it couldn't be there. But what we do find is that the phrase was used, and you know, I'm sure our listeners will have guessed it, just like you always spot it, Ian. It was used at exactly this time period in English history. So it does appear in letters, in books, in plays, in ads in the newspaper, you know, variations on this. And it's written as being common naval jargon. One one writer says about how Admiral Jem always used it. And it's often attributed to a tale about a sailor misinterpreting a piece of, of the Latin mass. Now, which piece is different in every story, which is one of the fun things. It's like a joke that, you know, has a different setup, but the same punchline every time. Yeah. But it, you know, building on this phrase, my eye, meaning nonsense or hogwash, it adds in this Betty Martin. But then there's a host of other people who claim that the whole Latin mass thing is mistaken. It was not mishearing that this is, you know, a prayer to St. Martin or a prayer to the Blessed Mother, which would be Latin kind of sounding a little bit like Betty Martin. But uh, that there had been a woman who played a witch in her village and was found out she was Betty Martin, that there had been a cunning actress who had, you know, kind of used her wiles to, to, you know, snare this other actor. And she was Betty Martin. And, and the, you know, there are all these other unknown origin stories. So perhaps we'll have to ask the doctor next time he's about where this comes. Oh, I, I think we will. I think we will. 
Mike, th this might be a great moment for us to pause. Pause, first of all, for the purposes of remembering the shark. Maybe we're going to call it Chekhov's shark. And second <laughs> of all, for, for the purposes of gammon, I'm feeling a bit peckish. Maybe it's time for a break. What do you say? Oh, with all my heart. We're glad to have you all aboard and would love your support at patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. P A T R E O N dot com forward slash lovers hole. Help us defray some of the expenses of making the lovers hole and join us for some additional content. Welcome back. We're still perusing chapter two of Treason's Harbour. Um, we were just hearing about sharks, but now, to extend this long day even further, Jack sets off. He leaves his group of captains there lounging in the sun, and he heads off to visit Admiral Hartley, who lives on the island, lives on Gozo. Now, this is a really unsettling episode in chapter two, which otherwise I think Mike was a little bit light. Right. But I, I found this really kind of depressing to read. Jack goes to visit this old shipmate, former commanding officer of his, who was then Captain Hartley, who is now Admiral Hartley. This guy had a role in helping Jack to pass his lieutenant's exam. Hartley was eventually promoted to flag rank, and although he was rather unpopular for being a bit greedy and a bit, and a bit licentious and sailing with cheap mistresses and stranding them in foreign ports, he was a bit of a likable character for Jack. Hartley loved gunnery, and, uh, and Jack had once rescued Hartley from the ocean. So Jack has probably got high hopes of a reunion as he walks along the long deserted road to, to find the house. And Mike, we get an animal encounter that's pretty unsettling here. It's really strange. It, he comes across this, well, first he hears this this noise, this knock, 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 knock. And he's wondering where the sound comes from. And then he sees this smaller tortoise kind of running across the road and then a great big one coming after her. And when it catches up, it knocks those sh its shell against the smaller one, knock, knock, knock. And at first, Jack is kind of thinking, tyranny, you know, you're bullying this little tortoise. But then realizes, as the small female raises up a little bit, that it's part of a mating ritual. And he watches. And O'Brien writes, the male covered her and maintaining himself precariously on her domed back with his ancient folded leathery legs, he raised his face to the sun, stretched up his neck, opened his mouth wide, and uttered the strangest dying cry. And well, you know, I'm sure that's how many of us hope to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, what? What? And all Jack says is, bless me, I had no notion how I wish Stephen were here. So I, I really don't know what to make of this. <laughs> My mind flashes back to praying mantises in Master and Commander. Right. Anyway, we, we might come back to the tortoises later. Uh, meanwhile, Jack moves on. He says he's unwilling to disturb them. He fetches a cast around the pair and walks on, trying to recall some lines of Shakespeare that had to do not exactly with tortoises, but with wrens, until he reached a wayside shrine dedicated to St. Sebastian. And it says, The martyr's blood recently renewed with startling brilliance and profusion. Beyond the shrine, there was a high stone wall, partly fallen, with an ornate wrought iron gate, once gilded, leaning unhinged against the masonry. This must be it, he said, calling his directions to mind. 
So just before he comes across Admiral Hartley's apparently rather disused and disheveled house, he's faced with the image of tortoises, he's faced with the connection to Shakespeare and the connection to, to the martyrdom of St. Sebastian. Wow, this is pretty deep. Right. You know, I chase this one all over the place. And and Shakespeare actually mentions wrens in nine different plays, but I really couldn't connect any of those references to what was going on here or was about to happen. St. Sebastian, kind of a unique saint in that he's said to have two martyrdoms. He's a Christian. He's in the Roman emperor's forces. Uh, it becomes clear that he's been converting people to Christianity. And so the Roman emperor has him killed by shooting him with arrows and leaves him behind. It's presumably dead. Uh, another, a different kind of saint, a woman finds him and he's okay. He, he lives again. And he, he takes this ability, this second chance to go confront the Roman emperor over his miserable treatment of Christians. And so this time the emperor has him beaten to death, his second martyrdom. Mm. Um, so I don't know. He's got, but in, in O'Brien's telling us that martyr's blood recently renewed with startling brilliance and profusion. You're kind of wondering, is this, he's kind of reincarnated again. We do come back to the tortoises in a minute. I did find out that St. Sebastian is, in fact, a patron saint of one of the towns in Malta, but it's the town on another island, not... Wow. It's it's reaching very deep. Right. Maybe we don't need to dig too far. Maybe sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as you might say. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> yeah. So Jack comes to this rundown house. It says, unlike anything he could remotely connect with the Navy, and I'm sure he's meaning in terms of its you know tidiness and, and, uh, and cleanliness. And he asks after the Admiral. And first of all, I think he's regarded with suspicion as possibly a debt collector. But he's finally invited in, he says, into a large room with little furniture, with, with a portrait of the Admiral years earlier, which is, we hear, well done. But Jack believes the artist didn't like the Admiral because it's painted with a facial expression that has a cold heartness, not really showing Hartley's good nature, at least the good nature that Jack remembers. And he recalls a brother officer saying that even Hartley's undoubted courage had a grasping quality about it, that he attacked the enemy in a state of furious indignation and personal hatred, as though the other side were trying to do him out of some advantage, prize money or praise or employment. And there's not much to be said for this, Admiral. And even though Jack seems to relate well enough to him, I'm also spotting a couple of characteristics for this Admiral in, late in his life, a couple of characteristics in common with Thomas Cochrane. But we'll, yeah, we might set that to one side. And when the Admiral in person finally enters, Jack says that the man himself is a very cruel caricature of the portrait, dressed in a snuff-stained old yellow dressing gown, with an ugly, ludicrous face with a look of sour discontent. He looks at Jack and has no interest, there's no pleasure. He asks why he's here. They talk about the weather, they talk about Valletta to fill the silence, and the Admiral asks him to sit, saying it's time for, wait for it, goat's milk. <laughs> he says it's essential that he has it regular, he's not kept waiting. So that there's only one thing that he could have done that might be on a par with drinking goat's milk, and that's producing a German flute, but at least he didn't do that. It's interesting because he's got this good nature, but Jack remembers he rarely expressed it, although Jack had seen it. And and now here he is, Jack's having to make all the conversation. And then Jack, you know, he's, he's trying to be so nice. And he says, you know, he hopes that he's in good health. 
And Hartley says, there is no health when you're old. And then adds health to what end? And so we're, you know, we're back revisiting a theme that I thought we had left behind at the beginning of the Ionian mission here. But this, this kind of aging to what end all of a sudden changes as a manservant brings the milk in, the goat's milk, followed by the woman who had met Jack originally in an old dirty dress, who's now changed into a cleaner dress that uh, O'Brien writes is cut remarkably low. And when she enters in this remarkably low-cut dress, Jack saw Hartley's dead face come to life. Now, he doesn't treat the woman well here at the moment. He just complains because she has biscuits and wine. And he's saying, you know, Aubrey's not going to want biscuits and wine uh, at this time of day. But clearly, you know, something has animated him now. Yeah. And we've got to expect that that's a lecherous connection to this woman. And that's really you know, distasteful, remembering that this is seen through the eyes of Jack, who has had his own problems at home, has had his own problems with the, the results of, of his adulterous, lecherous conduct way back in Halifax with Amanda Smith. And this all, I think, leaves a really, really unpleasant taste in the mouth. Meanwhile, anyway, there's a brawling sound in the courtyard. The woman and the admiral move to the window and we have this really sort of distasteful moment as he fondles her bosom, she brushes him off and shouts out the window. And Jack sees that Hart had clearly fallen unlucky and that mixed with his obvious lechery, there was what might be called love or infatuation or at any rate, a strong attachment. The woman leaves and the Admiral's much more human saying what a splendid temperament this woman has. He says, you can tell by the jut of her bum. And he sits and finally drinks wine with Jack. And sad news for Jack is that rumours of Jack's conduct with Laura Fielding, rumours though they only are, have got all the way as far as Gozo. The Admiral says, I've learned that Jack can't keep his breeches on and says, play the man while you still can, I always say. I wish I'd not lost so many opportunities in the past. I could weep blood when I think of some of them. Splendid women, play the man while you can. You are a gelding long enough in your grave. Some of us are geldings before we get there he added, with something between a laugh and a sob. Oh, oh Mike, this is, this is low stuff. Right. It's, it's really low stuff. And, f- you know, I'm thinking, for Jack, terrible advice. No, this is not the advice we want Jack to get here. Oh, man. And so, you know, immediately we're on the walk back and, and O'Brien is describing it and it's hotter and brighter and harsher and louder And he writes, Jack had rarely been so sad. The black thoughts flooded in one upon another, Admiral Hartley, of course, and the perpetual rushing passage of time, inevitable decay, the most unimaginable evil of impotence. Instinctively, he jerked back as something shot past his face like a block hurtling from a high aloft in action. It struck the stony ground just in front of his feet and burst apart. A tortoise, probably one of the amorous reptiles of a little while ago, since this was the very place. And looking up, he saw the huge dark bird that had dropped it. The bird looked down at him, circling, circling as it stared. Good Lord above, he said. Good Lord above. And after a moment's consideration, how I wish Stephen had been here. Whoa. So 
here we are with the saint with the two martyrdoms, Jack getting bad advice, seeing these tortoises making love and the older guy seeming to die in the process, now seeing either that one or another one dropped by a vulture splattering on the stones. And, and I, I, it doesn't say it's a vulture, but I assume it's it's a, a yeah. bird. Clearly, it's a bird of prey who's is looking to devour this thing. And then it just flies there circling Jack. And I, I don't know, but, you know, here here in the ranch in Florida, when, you know, there's vultures circling, that's not a good sign. Usually they're, they're looking like, you know, you're about the next dead thing that we see here. So, and, and in the same landscape, we've had the visual imagery of the blood of St. Sebastian freshly spilled. Right. Oh, my gosh. Well, at least there's two martyrdoms in that one. Not that we want a second martyrdom, but maybe a chance to come back. <laughs> so. Yeah. So what's, what's Jack to make of this? Is this the, the, the wages of sin are death or the wages of fooling around? Right. I, I hope Jack's... He, it, it's great that he says, I wish that Stephen were here, but Jack, I hope your higher brain functions are here and you're taking notes. Right, right, right. We're remembering Mercedes, Mrs. Fielding, how you just redeemed yourself. What's next? Yeah. And, and this also took me briefly, Mike, into the, the fable, the story of the Roman Emperor Claudius, who was a young boy, um, is said to have caught a wolf cub dropped from an eagle's claws. And that led you know, some prophet to predict that eventually Claudius would protect Rome in its hour of need. So is there something about dropping from a bird? Are we invited to think that the tortoise represents something that could be accidentally harmed, something innocent harmed because Jack fumbles the catch? Ooh. Failing to do what Claudius did. Oh my gosh. Right. That was that was plenty for one long day on Gozo. <laughs> oh my gosh, isn't it the truth? <laughs> well, well maybe we need to change situs. He you know, he wishes Stephen was there. Where was Stephen? Yeah. So while Jack is indeed wishing that Stephen was there, Stephen himself was sitting in St. Simon's Abbey. Hey Mike, that's a, a reference to our saint from earlier on, maybe. Right. He's in the Abbey. I think the fictional Abbey of St. Simon, listening to the monks singing Vespers. We learn that Stephen has skipped dinner. It's not a Catholic thing to do, I guess, a penance, it says, for lusting after Laura Fielding, and he hoped as a means of reducing his concupiscence. Mm. And his body had railed against the hunger, and he was feeling the, the back-breaking bench right through, it says, right through the first antiphon. Yet now... He was in a state of grace, stomach, back, carnal desire, all forgotten, he being wafted along on the rise and fall of the ancient, intimately familiar plain chant. Oh, Mike, the, the power of music. Yeah, I love it. I love especially, especially you know, the Gregorian chant. I love it. Well, we do learn that the French had been more than unusually unkind to the monastery and presumably might once have had you know beautiful rococo decorations and fixtures it says that the french had taken its treasure sold its cloister broken the stained glass window now replaced with cane matting stripped the walls of their marble and stone all of which had greatly improved the acoustics which is an experience that lots of british monasteries had in the reformation as well right the very old abbot it says who had known three grand masters he's referring to grand masters of the uh, the order of the knights of st john the, the abbot had, and who had seen the coming of the French and English sang on. His frail but true old voice drifted through the half-ruined aisles, pure, impersonal, 
quite detached from worldly things. And his monks followed him, their song rising and falling like the swell of a gentle sea. This is a really lovely moment. And having had O'Brien talking a lot about the language of light in the first chapter, Mike, he's talking here about the language of sound. And it's a really, really beautiful sound picture he's painting. He's also enjoying the fact, I guess, that some things are not ruined by time, not stripped by the rapacious French invaders, not stopped by decay, as Jack was discovering in his conversation with Admiral Hartley. Some things remain beautiful and everlasting through time. Yeah. And maybe that's what Stephen's got on his mind right now. It's interesting. At the at the end of the service, Stephen, a good Catholic, you know, turns to salute the altar, stops at the holy water. And he's looking at the people there, and, and they all look, you know, like they belong and typical, but he sees one this man who's dabbing his eyes with a handkerchief, you know, he's obviously crying, he's very emotional, mm. and he realizes it's Andrew Ray. So he thinks to himself, Ray, wait a minute, Ray cannot be a Catholic, given that he's on the Admiralty Board and the way things were in England, as you were mentioning with Henry VIII and the monasteries. But he does remember seeing him at concerts in London and kind of had always thought that he was there because it was very fashionable and the people he was rubbing shoulders with, but realized maybe, maybe he actually has a love of music. Now, Ray is, is then heading out and he completely ignores the holy water, which tells Matron, you're right, he's, you know, he's not a Catholic here. But then Ray spots Matron and introduces himself, saying that they had met once before at Lady Jersey's, that he is well acquainted with Mrs. Matron, and told Stephen where he had seen Diana before he left England. And they chat a bit about Diana, and Ray invites Stephen along for a pot of chocolate, which, of course, in my mind, always takes me back to the beginning of Master and Commander. Off for a pot of chocolate here. <laughs> Furiously whipped. <laughs> right, exactly. So they, they head over to the pastry cooks for their chocolate, and Ray asks Stephen if he enjoys the plain chant. And Stephen, of course, says, I do indeed, sir provided it be devoid of sweetness or brilliancy or striving for effect, and exactly phrased, no grace notes, no passing notes, no showing away. Exactly so, cried Ray, and no newfangled melismata either, angelic simplicity. That is the heart of the matter, and these worthy monks have the secret of it. So, they find they share some musical taste, and in particular, uh, a version of the Dana Nobis Pashum that they then start to talk about. Yeah, which of course means grant us peace, right. and we're going to come back to peace in a second. I- I'm guessing then that since they weren't a fan of Melismata, they might not have cottoned to, to Whitney Houston at the Super Bowl. I think that would have been <laughs> not to their taste. <laughs> You're right. That's right. But Mike, I, I want to dig in here on the music. There's a little bit, there's a medium-sized bone here that we can pick with the reference to the music. And you, you know how I go on this. He's got a musical reference and he's got it about 50% right, but he's left some important things on the table, so to speak. And by the way, I'm not convinced there's that much in the way of monasticism in Malta. There, there are loads of convents of nuns. It's a very Catholic country, a very Catholic place. But I'm not sure there would have been very many Cistercians or monks who might still have been singing all the divine offices all the way through the day in the early 19th century. But never mind. 
let's talk about the music. Maturin and Ray chatting about modes, I've got to say, is 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 largely hokum. Uh-oh. So modes are the ancient form of musical scales, the, the modes that were sort of codified by Pope Gregory I in the 6th century AD. So they've been part of church music already for a millennium and a bit by the time these guys are sitting down chatting about modes. And if you want to know what a mode is, um, a modern major scale, like do a deer, a female deer, that scale is the Ionian mode. The Dorian mode, another mode, is a folky-sounding version of what you would call a minor scale in modern musical theory. So if you think of a sea shanty, like, what shall we do with a drunken sailor? That's in the Dorian mode. But they chat on and on about modes. Ambrosian and Plagal, and which one do you prefer? Like, Ambrosian and Plagal are not modes. Saying, I prefer the Ambrosian to the Plagal is like saying, I prefer fishing with my tennis bat to reading my football. It's just like <laughs> nonsense. It's like using the words half right. So that made me harumph a little bit, but I'll I'll give a little bit back. I think it was perfectly fine to talk about there being a Mixolydian Agnus Day. You could sing Agnus Day in the Mixolydian mode. And they're absolutely right that the conservative practice of choral music since the Middle Ages had had a strong element of opposition to melismata or passing notes. Hence, that's why it's called plain chant. It's not fancy chant, it's plain chant. Sorry, Whitney. Anyway, five out of 10 on the music scale, I think, for Patrick O'Brien. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, it's interesting that this, you know, this whole chat about music leads us to understand a bit more about Ray. Yeah. Well, so they continue. They had just talked about peace. Peace, said Stephen. Shall we ever see it again in our time? And to that, Ray replies, I doubt it with the emperor in his present form. Uh, Stephen says, it is true that I am just come from church. Even so, I could wish to see that tyrant Bonaparte doubly damned to all eternity and back, the dog. At this, Ray laughs and he says, I remember a Frenchman who acknowledged all sorts of very grave faults in Bonaparte, including tyranny, as you so rightly say, and even worse, a total ignorance of French grammar, usage, and manners, but who nevertheless supported him with all his might. His argument was this, the arts alone distinguish men from the brutes and make life almost bearable. The arts flourish only in time of peace. Universal rule is prerequisite for universal peace. And here, as I recall, he quoted Gibbon on the happiness of living in the age of the Antonines concluding that, in effect, the absolute Roman emperor, even Marcus Aurelius, was a tyrant, if only in passe, but that the Pax Romana was worth the potential excess of his tyranny. As my Frenchman saw it, Napoleon was the only man, or rather demigod, capable of imposing a universal empire. So on humanitarian and artistic grounds, he fought in the Guard Imperiale. Wow. So here is, yeah, we're, we're back to these philosophical discussions like Graham and Stephen were having early on, but this one's a very different one. This one, you know, about, you know, because I support the arts and these universal, beautiful things, I can somehow justify a, a monarchy versus a republic or this, this kind of authoritarian rule of Bonaparte, although it does Take me back to Stephen's discussion in Fortune of War, you know, with the surgeon on the Constitution about, 
you know, we look at these beautiful things we have on, you know, under monarchs, but also look at the horrible things we have under monarchs. So, you know, Ray's arguing that tyrants bring about peace so the arts can thrive. I'm not so sure about this one, but it it was a fascinating insight into Ray. Yeah, and it, it's so carefully worked out and takes such a dive into the world of artistic beauty that you, you've got to think that this is Ray trying to be sincere. Yeah. And perhaps we don't know everything about Ray's role and motives, and perhaps certainly Ray doesn't know everything about Stephen and his motives. But maybe the, this, if this is the real Ray, there's some hmm, there's some deep and really backward logic going on there. Right, and well put. <laughs> I think Stephen spots this right away. And we know that he only discusses his own views with intimate friends. And he has a put down. It's a little bit like the put down that he gave to Graham earlier on when he said, sure, I've often heard it in Ballinasloe. He says here, sure, it's a point of view. All right. Saying, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Right. Opinions are like assholes. Anyway, so <laughs> Stephen says, of, of course, you're entitled to your point of view and doesn't want to be drawn. And Ray senses that there might be the opportunity to draw Stephen into a conversation about intelligence. He says he has a delicate task in hand at the moment and that the Admiral had suggested that he, Ray, should talk to Maturin about it. And he invites Stephen to a meeting when the Admiral arrives. And Stephen tentatively agrees. I think, well, he he agrees, but I don't think we're sure yet what role he's going to disclose for himself. And as he hears the clock chime, he heads off to see Mrs. Fielding. And Mike, we're left with Ray still in the scene. And we're going to see something new about Ray here, I think. Yeah, this was, boy, this really was chilling. So there's a mini spoiler alert, but you're about to hear it in a minute anyways. Yeah. So Ray, you know, we're just following along. Ray gets up. He goes back to the empty church. He goes back through a door, which O'Brien tells us is usually locked. He goes into the secularized cloister, down a passageway, and he's passing all these barrels. And then he goes through a door into a warehouse that O'Brien tells us is just full of barrels. And there is Lassure, the French agent, standing. And, you know, I, I kept wondering... First, why is O'Brien mentioning all these barrels? And then why is the French agent standing in the midst of all these barrels? Counting them. (laughs) Right, right. He's counting them. That's right. Good point. It's very clear, I think, then, that Ray has come at the summons of Lesueur, or at least come to a meeting to Lesueur, who he sees as his his superior. And immediately we get the revelation then that Ray is an agent of some kind working for Lesueur. Lesueur challenges Ray on why he's late. And by the way, when we look at it in this light, Ray was swinging it a bit hard, I think, lounging in the cafe drinking hot chocolate (laughs) with Stephen Maturin when his spymaster was waiting, counting barrels for him in the back of the church. Right. Anyhow, Lesueur inquires what Ray had said to Maturin and asks if he, Ray, knew that Maturin was an agent. Working for whom, asks Ray. For you, of course, for the Admiralty, says Lesueur. And Ray's caught out here. He genuinely didn't know. He says, I have heard of his being consulted. I knew that reports have been submitted to him because of his knowledge of the political position in Catalonia. But as for being an agent, I should certainly never think of him as an agent. His name does not appear on the list of orders for payment. And Mike, that's that's the critical error, I think. That's the critical oversight of Ray. He's believing that people are in the intelligence game to be bought and sold. Right. And unless you were about to put him right, he says, you do not know that he is the man who killed Dubreuil and Ponte Canet in Boston and who almost wiped out Joliot's organization through false information planted in the Ministry of War. The man who ruined our cooperation with the Americans. Not I, by God, cried Ray. 
Then it is clear that Sir Blaine, this is a very French way to mispronounce an English title, it is clear that Sir Blaine has not been open with you. It may be his native cunning, I'll continue without the accent, or it may be that someone somewhere has smelt a rat. You must look to your lines of communication, my friend. Mm. And now Ray is still insisting that the only possible motivation for somebody to be in the intelligence world is personal gain. He says, I have the list of payments almost by heart. I can absolutely assert that Maturin's name is not on any of them. Unless you're very cool. He says, you are right. He is an idealist, you know, and that is what makes him so dangerous. Yes. However, it is just as well that you did not know. You would never have been able to talk to him so naturally if any rats had been smelt. And if he knows about it, he is likely to dismiss them. Have you spoken to him about your mission? I have made general reference to it, says Ray and desired him to attend the meeting when the Commander-in-Chief arrives. Now we get the sound effect. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I think in, in terms plain enough for us to all get right on board with the idea, there's nothing tentative, there's nothing if-then-maybe about this. Ray is working for Lesueur. Ray, the guy who was sent over by the Admiralty to clean up the British intelligence network in Malta in the Mediterranean, is a French agent. Lestuo is telling him to keep his distance from Stephen, treat Stephen like a consultant. He's being watched, and they hope to learn from Stephen's network here what his connections are in Paris. And if Ray doesn't succeed soon, then they may have to put Stephen out of the way without compromising Lestuo's position here. He says Stephen is too dangerous to leave in place for too long. Yeah. So, Mike, we're back to the theme of three or four books ago where we've got this continuous threat of discovery and death and torture for Stephen. He escaped it for a book or two, but now we're back in this really dark place for Stephen. Right. Lassure was, you know, when we opened the book, he was saying, you know, he didn't want to take Stephen out because there'd be too many questions. And now he's thinking, yeah, we just might have to anyway. So, I'm a little taken here. You know, I mean, I was like, oh my God, you know, th- this guy who's so far up in the Admiralty, so far up in the intelligence workings of the Mediterranean is on the French payroll. This is bad. Now we're talking about doing Stephen in. And then Ray suggests that he might be able to help Lesur. He might be able to get rid of Stephen with no one being the wiser. He suggests that the day of mascara you may be used to help kill two birds with one stone. Now I'm wondering, oh my gosh, wait a minute. So Ray is going to get Stephen killed. He's also going to use this opportunity to kill somebody else. I'm trying to think, who do we know that Ray might want to have killed? And certainly one name pops up. Right. Not a million miles away from Stephen either. After all the fun and frolics in the court of the upper baraka and the chilenk and the opera and the italian and the flirting and the dog we've got some proper patrick o'brien jeopardy here we go here we go okay guys strap in Uh, we do learn though before the chapter ends we learn a bit more about the motivation of ray he's already strongly hinted that he sees personal gain as the main motivation and we get this very strong hint that all is not well with ray Lestuer is asking for his help in counting all the barrels. He says he gets money paid back on each of them. So presumably Lestuer is using some kind of trade or side hustle, either as cover or as a little uh, as a little local interest while he's uh, there in Malta. Ray asks for money from Lestuer to cover his gambling debts, and even though he claims to be an idealist. 
and Sub Hildebrand and the other officials that he has to gamble with, he says, make plenty of money out of the dockyards and supplying the ships, and they expect him, Ray, to gamble for high stakes to win their confidence. And Mike, this also makes me think way back to the what was it? Was it was it post captain when Jack sat down to play cards with Ray and some other guys? This makes me think how far back in his history has Ray been suborned? How far back has he been a victim to the leverage of his gambling debts that might have brought him into right. the world of spying for the French? Right. Gambling debts. We knew he was cheating Jack. That was where the whole thing arose. So maybe he cheated the wrong person <laughs> as well. Yeah. And between the debts and and you know the the, the chance of being called out and shot, yeah. he's now in the French pocket. Well, b- besides no longer having any sympathy from any of us, like he ever had it, he's clearly getting no sympathy from Lesueur. Lesueur says, bah, you can win their confidence without playing for high stakes. And Ray tries to reassure him. He says, well, with these men, it is essential. So, Mike, it was funny. I was reading through chapter two thinking, okay, we've just got a few encounters. We've got the thing with Admiral Hartley and we've got the thing with the you know, the lemon tree and Ponto. But now this this encounter between Stephen and Ray and then between Ray and Lesueur really opens up the book. We've got a secret mission coming up that everyone seems to know about, including the Royal Navy officers sitting in the sun on Gozo. We've got the Admiralty Secretary in town to straighten out intelligence, but he's a French spy. Stephen's about to be brought in on a mission that Ray seems to think might be used to kill our two birds with one stone. And who knows where that might be heading. I'm I'm pretty sure that amorous tortoises dropping from the sky is not the only thing our heroes might need to worry about. So, I don't know. What what do you say, Mike, next time to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. Thank you, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> yeah.